Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Let me cut to the chase for this podcast. Last month in Florida, legislation that would ban private businesses as well as public schools from inflicting guilt or discomfort on people during lessons or training about discrimination was introduced. State Bill 148, as it's known, was approved by the state's Senate Education Committee, the first step to becoming law. Specifically, and for the benefit of those of you who have not had the opportunity to peruse the bill, it's being touted as an individual freedoms bill, and it states in part that no training or instruction should compel people to believe that members of one's race, color, sex, or national origin are morally superior, and that no individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race, color, sex, or national origin. The bill is part of one state's push for woke, a word that has been recently hijacked as a bit of an imperfect acronym for wrongs against our kids and employees. As of the date of release for this podcast, no other jurisdictions have followed suit. However, in a two-year period in which both the highs and lows for progress in the racial and social justice arena have made it clear that anything is possible, this may be only the beginning of similar attempts at both legislative and policy levels, because we are certainly seeing a rise in educational mandates and book bans across the country using this specific phraseology, no discomfort, guilt, or anguish allowed. So I want to focus on the reasonableness as well as the historical realities and implications in trying to guard against guilt during learning opportunities. And to do just that, I have invited a few extraordinary guests over the course of this two-part podcast. In today's segment, I am honored to be joined by the Keenan Distinguished Professor of History, Dr. J. Michael Butler from Flagler University in St. Augustine, Florida. Dr. Butler specializes in 20th century Southern history with an emphasis on the civil rights movement. His academic career has focused on race, region, and culture. He's published in a host of journals, including the Journal of Southern History, Southern Cultures, and Popular Music and Society. He has been featured on C-SPAN's American History Lectures with his fascinating talk on post-civil rights era music. Dr. Butler's most recent book is entitled Beyond Integration, The Black Freedom Struggle in Escambia County, Florida, 1960 to 1980. Welcome to the show, Dr. Butler. Oh, thank you, Cindy Ann. The honor is absolutely mine. So I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. And, and again, I'm honored that you asked me to be on your podcast. Listen, I know how very busy you have been on the national media circuit with this latest development in this space. So I really want to thank you for making the time to chat with me. Of course, of course. You know, that's part of the reason that I wanted to publicize what I experienced is to let people know what the consequences of these bills and this fear mongering is really doing at the local level. Let's kick it off with this, if you will. 
the position of those who are really incensed by this bill will tell you that it's specifically for whites. And to be fair, the proposed legislation does not make that specification. It does reference, and I quote, no race or sex as a practical matter. Right, Dr. Butler? Uh, yeah, that's, that's correct. Uh, yeah, the you don't, practicality you don't, you don't of sound, it. You don't sound convincing. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not because, um, yeah, I, I have yet to hear the teaching of history from a perspective that makes the racial minority uncomfortable or that their feelings are even taken into consideration when such legislation is considered. Right. Uh, and, and, and your thoughts here on whether Martin Luther King would have, quote unquote, appreciated this legislation as proponents of it claim, given that the slain civil rights leader said he didn't want people judged by the color of their skin? You know, I think that that statement and that conclusion in and of itself, Cindy Ann, demonstrates the importance of historical education, particularly for people in positions of public leadership. Yes. I, I think that that is not just a uh, distortion of Dr. King's life's work, but I find it pretty disgusting that his words would be used out of context in a way that is self-serving to an agenda that seems to not care about what the consequences of this history are or you know what we need to do to address the inequities of our past. Um, yes. When the color of their skin line is mentioned, it's in context, obviously, of the, the, the March on Washington address. Yet, it's funny that the same people who often use the, we want to be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin, they forget the first part of that speech, right? They forget yes. that Dr. King says Black Americans have been written a check for their equal rights that has been returned in sufficient funds. Mm -hmm. We forget that he talked about police brutality. We forget that he talked about economic injustice. Instead, we like to cherry pick, or some people like to cherry pick Dr. King's words out of context to justify a variety of different movements, ideologies, and legislation that he would have been on the front line advocating against. Convenient omissions. Very convenient omissions. And it's, you know, it's easy because Dr. King's strategy, his tactic was love and nonviolence because it's, as he said, it's the only weapons we have in this fight. Yes. It's really easy to find lines that we like that reflect, you know, I, I often tell my students that the, the reality of Dr. King and the memory of Dr. King is the difference between a revolutionary and our conception of him as black Santa Claus, right? It's, it, it's really easy to talk about the peace and the love, but those are how those who are being persecuted should approach their oppressor. It's a mm -hmm. tactic mm -hmm. to have a more just society. I challenge your, your listeners, if they really want to read about how the movement was changing in real time to Dr. King is to read his final book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. And that book gives you the portrait of somebody who is in the midst of a changing movement, and he's not sure what the next step is. And it's fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating because the, the items that he addresses are the ones that we're still dealing with now. And his solution is massive, massive reconsideration of our priorities as a country. The easy work, he said in 1966, 67 is over. And even within his own organization, SELC, asked him uh, if he was crazy. The, the hard work is just beginning. That was easy. And he said, yeah, because now America is going to have to pay up. America is going to have to for lack of a better phrase, put its money where its mouth is. And it's one thing to guarantee equality, it's another thing to deliver it. Yes, very powerful. So Dr. Butler, let's use your comments thus far as a springboard 
for where I want to continue going with you in this space. Because in your lectures about cultural history, you make the distinction between de jure and de facto segregation, for instance. And for the benefit of all of our listeners who consist of both jurists and laypersons, if you would simply outline a similar distinction and given the factual history about simplified separation and, and the real dynamism that's associated with this country's civil rights movement so that the intention of who such mandates are really designed to protect could be clarified and regardless of how Bill 148 is technically worded. Oh, right. Well, that's, that's the importance, in my opinion, of history within the academy. We provide, as trained historians, context. The hobbyist or the amateur likes facts. And, and I think that the politician who misquotes Dr. King, either unintentionally or sometimes quite intentionally, it's our job to stand up and say, wait a minute, that's, you're, you're taking this out of context. You're not telling the whole story. So you're absolutely right. Text is important. Subtext, though, is just as important. Because, you know, let's talk about de jure and de facto segregation. My quick explanation of the difference between the two is segregation by law, de jure, and the consequences of years of separation by law, and that's de facto. Discrimination by practice. It is really easy, theoretically, for us to address de facto segregation. You change the laws. Mm -hmm. Now, to get to your point about why do the laws exist in the first place, it's really interesting. Who do those laws serve and what is the purpose? I ask my students all the time, why in the late 1890s do we separate? between the races and places of public accommodation. And sometimes I often get the, the response, well, it's because this facility is better than. And I'm like, no, we're missing the point. The reason that we separated in the first place was to convey social importance. White people pass the laws. They make the rules. This is white only. And because it's white only, that makes it superior. So it's to foster notions of superiority, but also to foster notions of inferiority. And those who are labeled inferior are powerless to change the system. So this whole idea of separation is important because it conveys who is on top and who is not, right? An interesting side note to that, Cindy Ann, is that, uh, you know, I've, I've had the, the wonderful fortune to interview several people who came of age in the Jim Crow South. And I've had white people who have grown up during this time who asked their parents, why can't we go to the balcony in the movie theater? Because it's a better view. We want to sit in the balcony. And they're like, no, that's the worst place to go because that's where they are. <laughs> well, it makes no sense to a kid. I right. want to, I want to see it. So again, it gets to your point of why are laws passed and what is the meaning? What is the subtext of those laws? Who's in power? Who deems superiority? And mo most importantly, who is labeled inferior? So that is the purpose for the law. Now, the civil rights movement was a campaign initially against the jure forms of segregation. It is to enforce the notion that separate but equal does not apply in the public school system, right? It's the reversal of Plessy v. Ferguson. Mm -hmm. We have the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which becomes the ultimate objective of the 60s campaign. We have the passage of the 65 Voting Rights Act, which is the culmination of Freedom Summer, of Selma. The two biggest legislative pillars of the civil rights movement or the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Now what? Now we have the shift to de facto. Now we have to deal with the consequences of. Less than a week after the Voting Rights Act is passed, Watts explodes. Mm -hmm. How do you explain that? Lyndon Johnson 
had no answer for it. He did not understand that what I'm trying to pass legislation to improve lives for quote unquote these people. Well, as Dr. King said, the riot is the language of the unheard. So this idea of how can we address economic discrepancies? How can we address deplorable housing conditions? How, from my research in Escambia County, how do we transform the movement from one against segregated bowling alleys to ones against the presence of Confederate images in public schools? Mm-hmm. You know, so when we think about police brutality, when we think about redlining, and we think about redistricting, gerrymandering, when we think about the in our public schools, the number of African-Americans who are the percentages who are punished, suspended, or or not allowed to enter gifted programs. These are all consequences of years of de jure forms of segregation. This is still the legacies of it. Right. Michelle Alexander wrote about the new Jim Crow and the school to prison pipeline and how the war on drugs becomes a part of this systemic history of how the past has informed the present when it comes to race and class in the United States. So that's a really long-winded answer. Historians and academics are really good at that. Yeah. But <laughs> the, the long and the short of it is the movement changes. It evolves. Yes. It shifts from a focus on unjust law to a focus on the consequences of years of unjust laws that we're still dealing with to this very day. Exactly. And, and that is the context that is so important for the realities behind mandates like this. And again, regardless of how it is worded. So understood and indeed truly helpful. So let me ask you this, in light of this landscape that you have painted for us, racial equity is a concept that has experienced an unparalleled interest in in the months since George Floyd's murder, of course. And with this interest, more organizations have been focusing on race literacy uh, in their DE&I learning initiatives. Could you talk a little bit about this concept and explain why it's an important component of any meaningful discussion about equity? Yeah. Equity is meant to raise awareness concerning issues of diversity. And equity and diversity training are really important because, you know, I'm, I know the accent gives it away, Cindy Ann, but I'm actually originally from Alabama. No. I, I know, right? No, I, it's, not, <laughs> it's not Canada. I, I know you were thinking maybe Nova Scotia. Yes, but yes. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's L.A. It's lower Alabama. And... <laughs> To quote, you know, something that I heard a lot as a kid, we don't think about what we don't think about. Mm -hmm. And that's the purpose of emphasizing equity and diversity. I don't think about a perspective of a really powerful Black woman such as yourself unless you explain it to me. I don't understand the perspectives of a Latinx man unless He's at the table and can share those experiences with me. When I had to talk with my son, it was not about how he should act when pulled over by the police. So I think for a black mother, that talk means something much different. Yes. Uh, So diversity and equity training is meant to put us in the shoes of others whose perspectives we would not have otherwise considered. And I think that movement toward diversity, that movement toward even equity is a concept. It's not that one day we arrive, we have achieved equity. No, it's how do we continue working toward realizing the promises that our nation has made to all peoples. That's to me what equity means. And that's mm-hmm. the importance of diversity. We don't think about what we don't think about. And when we have perspectives that aren't ours, 
you know, now if people hear about perspectives and lives and experiences that aren't theirs and they choose to do nothing with it, that's a them problem. Right. That's where you can, well, that's where the law becomes an ally, quite frankly. Right. But diversity and equity are mandates to make us realize the promises of this great nation for all. I like the way that you've put that. And if you could walk with me for a moment down a, a, a little tricky path that I want to take you. Uh, DNI professionals have been humming along fairly inoffensively <laughs> for the past three or four decades when we focused on concepts like diversity and inclusion, culture, belonging. But it seems to me that we've perhaps poked the proverbial bear when the E word, right, started creeping into the DNI mix much more prominently within the past few years. So I, I wonder what your thoughts are about the impact uh, of the concept of equity on an apparent spike in appetite to push back as evidenced by no guilt mandates like these? That's a great question, Cindy Ann. I think for people in the majority, they can praise diversity and equity when it requires no sacrifice. I think that the racial majority now, of which I'm a part as a white male, I think that because I've heard people say this, that diversity without sacrifice is easy, but when sacrifice is required, in other words, we have to allocate money to diversify. Yeah. We have to put our money where our mouth is, literally and proverbially. When there is some sacrifice required, to bring others up, not even to our level, but to bring them up to approach equality, the majority gets very uncomfortable because they wonder why they have to sacrifice something now. I wish I could be in the room sometimes when people who look and maybe even sound like me have these conversations because white people, by and large, tend to look at equity as a zero-sum game, that if I practice equity, that I have to, I will lose something, when that's not always the case. A backlash against equity does not happen, though, in a vacuum. In other words, it's really easy, for instance, for the NFL to respond as they did to Colin Kaepernick, and then reverse course when George Floyd happens, when their star quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, the face of the league, speaks out against it. And then we do things like put slogans that say in racism in the end zone, as if that makes everything better. We are going to form committees and we're going to have Jay-Z at the Super Bowl and we'll live happily ever after when actually look at the number of black coaches we have. Look at the opportunities that they get after they're fired. Look at the number of minority owners. Is equity something where we can demonstrate that it is in everyone's interest to sacrifice something so that we fulfill our obligations as Americans? I, you know, I, I think that, quite frankly, a lot of people believe that the majority has surrendered enough that there is a tipping point. And it seems to me that that tipping point was really reached when we elected a black man president. Fair point. I mean, that's throughout history. One of the things that history demonstrates to us, Indiana, is that every time we have taken a step forward in terms of race relations, in terms of true equity, yes, we take three to four steps backward. We see it with Reconstruction. We see it with the Civil Rights Movement. We see it with African-American military service in World War I and World War II. Every step forward 
results in an inevitable backlash. And it's all fear, irrational fears, in my opinion. So I think equity scares some people because to them, it requires sacrifice. And for some reason, many people in positions of power believe that they've sacrificed enough. And right. the, the acknowledgement of injustice does not require sacrifice. It requires critical thinking and empathy. That's not a lie. So equity is a, is a far scarier concept because of what is involved than concepts like culture or belonging. That's right. Belonging and culture are buzzwords. Equity means do you practice what you preach? It is equity. an action item. Equity is an action item. And it's, <laughs> we, we in academia, you know, we have uh, outcomes, learning outcomes. We have assessment where we have to ask ourselves as teachers in the field, as, as professionals, we promise students X, do they get it? How do they demonstrate it? Equity is asking businesses, industries, and corporations, how do you monitor on the promises that you make? Do you deliver on the promises you make? And it's there. You either do or you don't, or it's a process. And yes. yeah, I think it it scares a lot of people because they don't understand it. Kind of like critical race theory. <laughs> yes, and that is a subject of a whole other podcast, isn't it? <laughs> it um, is, it is. We'll, and we'll touch upon that um, shortly, but some of the chapters that you have been talking about, recent chapters in history, in, in race relations in this country, go to this de facto matter that we've been talking about. It's interesting that, you know, when we think about that in this country, we are currently experiencing the highest levels of anti-Asian hate crimes, fueled in large part by misconceptions around the global pandemic, that the FBI is currently investigating bomb threats against 20 targeted historically black colleges and universities in the past week alone, right? And anti-Semitic incidents continue to surge. These isms that I'm referring to and that you have been referring to are not a thing of the past, right? As a de facto matter, again, to reiterate your teachings and that civil rights to your point is still evolving. So if crucial conversations and training initiatives that include racist components of America's so-called past are only acceptable if they don't offend white people, what's the danger here? That ignorance is perpetuated. That's the danger. Yes. History is not about making its students feel comfortable. It's not about reinforcing a narrative of exceptionalism. It's about teaching us hard truths concerning who we claim to be, how we've gotten to where we are, mm -hmm. and how the past continues to inform the present. Mm -hmm. Some of the history that I teach, Cindy Ann, it made me, it still makes me uncomfortable. There are Things that have happened in this nation, in this state, in this city, that should make students uncomfortable. But that uncomfort comes from the, the realization that it could and did happen here. The subjective nature of feelings and how you feel when you're taught things is a slippery slope. I, I'll give you a great example. It's a really ironic thing that. Um, you know, the, the episode, I think, that maybe brought me to your attention was the Osceola County incident and how a civil rights history training symposium for teachers was canceled. Mm -hmm. A week later, less than 30 miles away, we had literal Nazis in downtown Orlando. I, this is 2022, and yet we've normalized hate and the nothing exposes darkness quite like light and history is the light students 
when they learn about this, these topics, when they learn about civil rights history, when they learn about anti-Semitism in the United States, when they learn that some of our captains of industry were rabid anti-Semites or Klan sympathizers, mm -hmm. one of the first responses is, why weren't we taught this in school? It explains so much. And they don't get mad at me for teaching them. They get mad at their parents, their teachers, and their school boards in their home counties for keeping that information from them because it is so impactful. So the danger of not teaching history that makes us uncomfortable is that we have to deal with uncomfortable realities when the hate mongers actually show up. Absolutely. So Dr. Butler, did it actually surprise you when the school district unceremoniously disinvited you from that talk that you were going to give about the long civil rights movement last month? No, it didn't. I teach civil rights history, so I'm rarely surprised, but yet often disappointed. When you think we're to a point where the teaching of historical truth should be absolutely non-controversial, we find ourselves in an environment where as the district said, the teaching of this topic, quote unquote, raises red flags. Ironically enough, the red flags that came to Orlando just a week later were the real red flags that we should be alarmed by. And those are the flags of the Nazis. I wasn't surprised because I understand history, but I was still disappointed that this is a fight we're having, you know, and, and it's not, Cindy Ann, I don't get upset because Dr. Mike Butler doesn't get to present to a group of teachers. I get disappointed because the real story here is teaching our kids to appreciate the sacrifices of people who look like them, who changed history. Now more than ever, particularly kids who feel marginalized and alone and who feel like history doesn't represent them and it's not for them, they need to hear about Harry T. They need to understand what happened in Groveland. They need to know about people like St. Augustine, Robert B. Haling, H.K. Matthews in Pensacola. They need to know that people who look like them and their relatives literally changed the trajectory of this state's history. It gives them a sense of ownership and it demonstrates to them that they can change history because people like them have. So the idea that a history seminar meant to educate teachers from the K through eight level about the context of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. as Black History Month begins deprives their students of maybe hearing a story that makes a difference in their educational evolution. Yes. And just for context, because you've mentioned critical race theory, which, again, for the benefit of our listeners, was developed in the 1980s as a graduate level academic framework to quantify the impacts of structural racism, including disparities among Black people and white people in policing and prosecution, right? That had nothing to do with what you were about to speak on, right, Dr. Butler? Absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, I don't know of any public school teacher in this state who teaches critical race theory in their classrooms. I especially don't know how K through eighth grade teachers were going to incorporate critical race theory into their curriculum. These bills are written for a problem that does not exist. I don't teach history with the objective of inspiring guilt or hoping that my students hate each other who look different. That, right. No, 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 no. That's not the point of history. As a matter of fact, Indiana, it's the opposite. This history, when we know it, helps us appreciate each other and recognize differences and still empathize and stand with your colleagues anyway. Yes. I, I, I hate, in, in the trainings and in my classes, I hate it when people say, I don't see color. Yes, you do. We all see color. Seeing difference is not a problem. 
the way you respond to those differences is a problem. Exactly. We're all different. Yes. Yes. It's so, disingenuous. It's disingenuous at best. At best. Disingenuous at best, dangerous at worst. Yes. So, yeah. My teacher training seminars, which is one of the highest compliments I get as a professional, you know, to be labeled the lead scholar or the content expert, I take that job very seriously. And basically, what I intended to do was to give a chronological and topical deep dive into the civil rights movement starting in 1896 and continuing into the 21st century, just to give the teachers perspectives and tools that they may be able to use in shaping Black History Month curriculum. Yes. Well, you know, you referenced uh, Black History Month, and we would have been having this conversation during any given month. But since we are talking in February, <laughs> and we are talking about history, let's address the issue of Black History Month for a moment. Okay. Quick historical context here. The tradition of honoring Black history started back in 1926 during the second week of February for one week to coincide with the birthdays of both Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Did I get that right, Dr. Butler? <laughs> and, and, for, and for historical accuracy purposes, it was called Negro History Week back then, right, Dr. Butler? Yes, ma'am. But here we are in 2022, still bookmarking this month. On one hand, we've been hearing variations of the point that Black history is American history. And on the other hand, others will posit that a dedicated month suggests that Black history is actually a bit of a novelty. So I wonder if you could square this up. <laughs> Black history is American history, number one. It's not your history. It's not a history that belongs to someone else. It's a history that makes us who we are as the United States of America. The reason that I, well, there are a lot of reasons that I was attracted to these topics, Cindy Ann, but one is just wrapping my mind around the idea that in this country, we can make promises to all people, except because of this item or that item, it's always an obvious contradiction. And it really bothered me that in the South, many of the most vociferous opponents of integration were ministers. Uh, personally, I could not reconcile that. So yes, it's not just a platitude to say that Black history is American history. Take your favorite movie and remove a leading character. Now try to make sense of it. That's removing the African-American experience from the American experience. Wonderfully put. Thank you. It's a simple analogy, but, and you can use it for movies, television shows, your favorite novel, whatever the case may be. But if you remove one of the central figures of your favorite work of art, it changes the meaning. And oh, by the way, it doesn't make sense if you remove Han Solo from Star Wars, right? Yes. That's what we do when we literally whitewash our past. It no longer makes sense. And oh, by the way, it's entirely inaccurate. I wish we didn't have a Black History Month because that would mean that Black history is incorporated into every month. Mm -hmm. The reason that there is a Black History Month is because the African-American experience has been left out of the master narrative of American history. And that is a travesty. Indeed. So commemorating the Black past can coexist with our continuing efforts to make sure that it's also a part of our collective American history. Absolutely. And that's something to celebrate. Because the African-American experience, the civil rights movement, is the quintessential 20th century American story. How do we live up to the promises that we make to all people in the Constitution? Helpful. Listen, Dr. Butler, in the, in the wake of a national call to dismantle racist symbols in prominent public places, 
most notoriously touched off by the tragic 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. I understand that you are scheduled to deliver a presentation on the contextualization of Confederate iconography this month. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you've done your research. I'm scared to ask what else you may know about <laughs> East Indiana. <laughs> yes, I... Lots. <laughs> scary. <laughs> I was involved in a contextualization committee in St. Augustine, Florida. It was determined after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville that our Confederate monument that is in the middle of our plaza in the nation's oldest city needed to be addressed. And we were told, the city was told, that the monument would not be moved, but we did need to contextualize it. Fast forward to summer of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd, and our city made the decision to move it. <laughs> in between contextualization, how do we give meaning to monuments? And I was one of the scholars that was on that committee. And my emphasis, more than anything else, when I applied to serve on the committee, was to make sure that I represented in the contextualization the points of view for people who did not view that monument as a reminder of heroic sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Right. When we say that these monuments represent the South, we tend to confuse the South with the Confederacy. These monuments represent a variety of things to a variety of different peoples. And the meaning of a monument changes over time. The reason that it was put up, the time that it was erected, the reason that it was erected, all of that matters. The speeches that were given at the dedication, the parades and activities that occurred in front of a Confederate monument on Confederate Memorial Day mattered. Mm -hmm. During the Civil Rights Movement, the meaning of the monument changed. It was challenged. So long story short, yeah, I was involved in the contextualization and I wanted to stress that this monument has different meanings for different groups that have changed over time. It is not just in honor of your ancestors. If we're gonna be honest with what these monuments mean and represent, we have to be honest with its entire history. And that means we have to be honest about what the Confederacy was. Let's make no mistakes about it. Civil War was a war that was fought for the perpetuation and protection of human slavery. Hard stop. Those monuments were erected as a, an effort to rewrite history. Those who took up weapons against the United States of America, I don't care what their personal reasons were, fought for a government whose constitutions, both at the state and the Confederate level, made it impossible for owners to emancipate their slaves. They fought for a government that was dedicated to the perpetuation of human bondage. Hard stop. While some may consider those people heroes, Others consider them traitors. They tried to dissolve the United States of America. They took up weapons against the United States. But the facts didn't matter to the people who wanted to erect those monuments. Those monuments were erected to send a message about who was in power, what mattered to them, and what the intended outcome of those monuments would be. It glorifies the Confederacy. It says that we're American veterans. It says that they fought for a cause that was righteous and just, and it had nothing to do with slavery. It was about states' rights, and that these people are heroes, and that they were from here. And it's really interesting, Cindy Ann. One of the charges that we got when we contextualized and then later moved, you know, the monument was moved, was you're trying to rewrite history. My contention was no, we were trying to correct the inaccurate history that these monuments were first meant to do. We're trying to rewrite history in a factual way, not a propagandistic way, because that's what those monuments represent is propaganda. 
So one of the opportunities that you have in fulfilling this role on this committee is to help demonstrate how nostalgia and memory and identity pervade public discourse concerning uncomfortable but historical truths. Could not have said that any better myself, Cindy Ann. That was <laughs> remarkable. Yes, it's about correcting the rewriting of history. It's about distinguishing between nostalgia and myth-making and hero worship. That's not historical truth. On top of that, you say, you know, you, you used a phrase that, that I really liked. It's also about claiming public space because these monuments are erected. In St. Augustine, it was placed in the middle of the plaza, the main gathering point for citizens in St. Augustine since its foundation. There's a reason that that monument was erected after reconstruction ended in the middle of our town square. There's a reason that most of these Confederate monuments exist in front of courthouses, because that's where all people in a location had to go to do their business, white and black. It was a message to the black community of who is in power and what those in power value, and it wasn't them. Understood. Dr. Butler, given the context that you have so clearly been outlining for our discussion, it seems clear that discomfort will inevitably accompany our occasionally ugly but factual realities. That's called history. And that we seem to do a great disservice to members of our society and to the progress of our collective interest in race relations and DE&I efforts in general, if we wage war on discomfort, because that is not the enemy. I think we have to get comfortable with discomfort because if you work out and exercise as I need to do a little more, you're not comfortable, you're sore, it hurts. But you know what? You go back to the gym. It's the same thing with diversity and inclusion. We have to face uncomfortable realities and it's not easy, but you know what? It makes me a better ally to you and it makes me a stronger advocate for justice. Yes. Out of discomfort comes progress and we need to get comfortable with the discomfort, not run from it. Absolutely. You have been providing invaluable context. Uh, and I just want to invite you to share any final thoughts before I let you go back to doing what you clearly do best and sharing your incredible intellectual contributions in this space. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, it's the public platform uh, that I get where I get to share my, my passion. I have the best job in the world. And I feel like I have an obligation to those who really sacrifice their freedom, their lives, their livelihoods. I have an obligation to tell their stories so that they receive the credit for making this country live up to its promises for all. I will say this, Indiana, I think that we sell ourselves short when we don't recognize the importance of diversity and equity. And what I mean by that is that when we emphasize things that are uncomfortable and we wage this war on feelings, which is really interesting because during the last presidential campaign, I was told that my feelings didn't matter. Now, there are a lot of my best students who wanted to be teachers who are seeing what's happening in the public arena and they want nothing to do with the profession. We're not just hurting ourselves by ignoring uncomfortable truths in the short term, but we're also sending a message to our best students. And that is what is uncomfortable today may be directed against your topic tomorrow. Yes. So I, um, yeah, in conclusion, I just want people to think about what 
the long-term consequences are to giving in to short-term discomfort. And, you know, I hope I can be an ally and an advocate when I can be, and I'll keep doing my best to brush back the frontiers of ignorance. Beautifully stated, Dr. Butler. This has been such an incredible conversation and really as a prelude to where we will go next for our listeners next week. And that has to do with the practical challenges of providing meaningful learning opportunities in the workplace. And in the wake of these increasing attempts to erect guardrails against guilt. In the end, diversity and equity is good for business. If people would realize that having diverse voices influence policy is actually good for business in all walks of life, then we would embrace the things that you work so hard to convey. Diversity is something that makes your business and industry stronger, not weaker. So let's, you know, more power to you as you keep fighting the good fight. And I couldn't have stated that any better. <laughs> so we understand one another, Dr. Butler, clearly. <laughs> well, you're one of a few. So thank you for that, Cindy Ann. Dr. J. Michael Butler, Distinguished History Professor from Flagler University. Thank you so much for joining me. Again, it was my pleasure. And it was a very enjoyable conversation. Anytime you want to talk about history, anytime you want to talk about these things, don't hesitate to reach out. I certainly will. I hope all of you have enjoyed this podcast just half as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. I hope you plan to tune in for the second installment of this topic next week, during which time we will delve into the practical implications of such mandates for organizations. In the meantime, please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at littler.com. If you should have any questions about this episode, or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.